Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We began last week looking at this passage. And if you're just joining us by way of sitting in the room or maybe listening to this as a recording, we've been in a series that looks at the biblical calling and roles for godly husbands. We spent four weeks on that, and now we're transitioning to the godly expectations for a Christian wife. I'm in fear that if anyone pulled out either a one of these sermons in the whole series or even a soundbite in one of these sermons, there could be massive misunderstanding. So I want to encourage you that you find yourself understanding that this is in context of a passage. Let me read that passage for you. It's a passage familiar to most who've been in the church for some time. And we're going to be looking intently at the expectation that God has for godly Christian wives. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he may present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects or fears her husband. It is no secret that we are witnessing a massive and fast societal shift in our generation. This shift shows up in many dimensions. Morality is being constantly redefined. Gender is being confused over and over. Marital roles are being recast. And sin is being normalized. This is nothing new. If you go back eight centuries before Christ, Isaiah said in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil. Those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Those who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. 
to look for our understanding of marriage anywhere but God's original blueprint is to look to our own wisdom and to commit the great sin to which Isaiah issues a woe in Isaiah 5. There's another shift or drift, we could say, that's happening in the idea of subordination, submission to authority. We see this in sports over and over. Uh, Players rebelling against team captains, players rebelling against coaches. A few years ago, we saw a situation where an NBA player during halftime put his coach in a stranglehold. Government, we see it all the time. Oh, we want to submit when it benefits us, but when it doesn't, we question it. You can see it played out every day on Twitter and on Facebook, where subordination and submission is projected as a weakness, but following order is disdained, dismayed. Those who do submit are looked at as weak, and those who rebel as strong. The passage before us addresses the issue of submission and of subordination. In the weddings that I do, I challenge the man and the woman in front of God and witnesses. And one of the things I say to the woman is that the expectation that God has for you is that you will submit to this man of your choosing and God's providence in a way that honors him and brings you and he glory. I can't tell you the number of times and the hundreds of weddings I've done where someone would come up to me and innocently say, you know when you talked about that submission part, I just felt really squirmish and squeamish. Why do we recoil at this idea? Well, this passage does talk about subordination or submission of a Christian wife to her husband. And without biblical understanding, we all cringe at the possible misapplication of submission as exploitation and or oppression. We hear this word submit, be subject to, submission. We think of tyrants and ogres. We import cruelty, unfairness, meanness, domination, coercion, persecution, abuse, mistreatment, and ungodliness. As Americans, we love our freedom and we love our independence. We love permissiveness and we love autonomy. Submission has become a bad word in our culture, but it's not a bad word in the Bible. The idea of oppressing someone who is in submission to an authority could not be farther from the mind of what Paul has inscripturated here in Ephesians chapter 5. When he talks about a wife's submission to a husband, it is first and foremost in the context of a husband who is called to lead like Christ. Now, let me get ahead of the curve. Some of you may think, but what if my husband is ungodly, disobedient, or even an unbeliever? We're going to have a whole sermon on that next week. Peter actually addresses that head on. In God's mind and in God's word, authority is not synonymous with tyranny. Authority does not smack of a relationship between a superior person and an inferior person. 
And it is not an expression of male preeminence or male superiority or male supremacy. It actually just describes roles in a relationship. Wives and husbands, as well as children and parents and servants and master in the same, masters in the same context. And also in 1 Peter 2 and 3, they have different appointed God-given roles. And yet they possess equal joy and wonder and dignity as image bearers of God. What separates man from the animal kingdom is not just intelligence, it's that we bear the image of God, male and female, equally. Yet God has created a world that functions on order and on hierarchy. In other words, there are multiple spheres of authority that have been placed by God in every single area of our life. If you don't believe that, just run every red light you come to today and see if there is authority and order in your world. Three main institutions that God describes in his word regarding authority of people in the roles over other people, demonstrating his divine sovereign will, the family, the church, and the state. These are all addressed specifically in God's word where there is a position of authority or headship and a position of submission and following. And Peter expands that and says, submit yourself to every human institution. That would include teachers and coaches and policemen and bosses. This is all for our good. This is not a demeaning exercise. It's all for our good. God uses the protection of the state to serve its citizens. He uses the protection of elders in the church to serve his church. He uses the protection of a husband to serve the wife. These are all intended to be benefits to the one in submission. Now, an important note as we begin, as we said this last week, all, listen, all earthly submission at one point or another, will include submission to authority that fails. Can we just get that out of the way right now? All authority except the Lord Jesus Christ will ultimately and eventually fail at some level. But failed leadership does not negate the position of authority and leadership. Just because there's corruption in politics doesn't mean you can disobey and dishonor the government. Just because a coach makes a bad call doesn't mean you can now disobey him and dishonor him by changing the play. Just because a teacher is unfair in an assignment or on grading doesn't mean you can dishonor and obey that teacher, either he or she, has the, the one that God has given you. And yet we're watching the placing of insubordination in the position of hero in our world. Now, just to review, we've talked about this on and on over the last month and a half. Romans 2 says there is no partiality with God in verse 11. There's no male or female. All are one in Christ, talking about the dignity of maleness and femaleness, the sexes. 
And that leads us into two main interpretive camps and practical camps in these issues of male and female relationships and husband and wife's particular. This is review. There's complementarianism from the word complete. It means the woman was created to complete the man and as a suitable helper to him. Men and women were created equal in essence, both in the image of God, but distinct in their roles. God's design is obvious in this in the creation. And as we'll see in a moment, he uses the analogy of the Trinity to show these roles. Egalitarian is another worldview or interpretive scheme that says God created male and female equal in all respects. Little or no limitations or distinctions between men and women and marriage in the church. Now our series, as we've said over and over in our church, takes a decidedly, unapologetically, and unashamedly complementarian position. We truly believe as church, as your leaders and elders, as your, your friends, that that is the best interpretation of what God intended when he wrote his book. Verse 22 says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as the Lord. And the reason that a wife who is a believer is called to submit to her husband is rooted in the theology and reality of a husband's headship. And we studied that for a few weeks Remember, biblical complementarians champion an exalted view of women. We believe they are to be honored with justice, dignity, respect, and care, and love. They are to be protected and promoted. But we also affirm that we live in a wretched world that is at war with women. Listen, please note, hear me clearly We are very aware that the current threats to the abuse of women in our world are at an all-time high. And if they're not at an all-time high, they're at an all-time high of being propagated and disseminated in the record. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, Alexander Strauch wrote this. According to the 1993, think about how old this is. I'm doing it on purpose. Think about how old this is. According to the 1993 United Nations Human Development Report, quote, no country treats its women as well as it treats its men. Women throughout the world suffer a greater degree of poverty than men. Two-thirds of the world's illiterate are women. In many parts of the world, they are forced into low-skilled jobs. They are underpaid. They are overworked. They are discriminated against. Even in modern, developed societies, divorce leaves women with the primary responsibility to care for children and usually leaves them in a greater degree of poverty than their estranged husbands. Sexual assault on young girls, rape, and wife-beating are rampant worldwide and remain seriously underreported. In the Philippines, Thailand, and India, the forced prostitution of young girls continues on almost unchecked. There's a growing trend of national girl-child-slave industry. In India, especially in northeast India, bride burning continues, and more than 9,000 brides in a year are killed by husbands or in-laws who seek a second dowry. In parts of Africa, young women undergo genital mutilation, female circumcision, in part to curb future sexual desires. Furthermore, the worldwide explosion of hardcore pornography denigrates all women because it vividly imprints on men's minds that a woman's value is primarily for sex, end quote. 
It's only gotten worse since. There is no question that repression of women in some areas of the world and in some homes in our culture challenges belief. In fact, in some places, women are denied basic, humane, medical care, education, simply because of their sex. In some Middle Eastern countries, women cannot even go out in public without a male family member and must be completely covered from head to foot. Islamic militants threaten harm and even death to women who speak out against the injustices they are experiencing because they are women. And in fact, the situation is so, so dire that the practice of female infanticide and sexual selection through abortion is practiced in vast parts of Southeast Asia because modern technology provides parents in third world countries now, such as China and India, the ability to determine the sex of a child before it's born while still in the mother's womb. Governments are willing to kill young girls still alive in their mother. In that kind of context, the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the shining example and beacon of hope for the way women and wives ought to be loved and cared for and protected and provided for. As we talked about for a few weeks, godly men and godly husbands are called to lead, provide, and protect. They're to be loving leaders, sufficient providers, and selfless protectors. But for this week, we look at the other side. Let's look at a godly wife and her role and position as she seeks to glorify God in her submission to her husband. Let's dive into this text. And as we do, I want to discover with you three clarifying insights about a Christian wife's submission to her husband. Three clarifying insights about a Christian wife's submission to her husband. That first clarifying insight is in verse 22. Number one, it is motivated by submission to Christ. It is motivated by submission to Christ. Verse 22, wives, literally the Greek says, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. It might surprise you to know that in the original, there is no verb in verse 22. It borrows the verb from the previous verse. Back up in verse 21. And be subject to hupotasso. Put yourself under in rank. Follow in a submissive way. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There is a real sense in which all of us are subject to one another. We know that from the, the one another's. We know that from loving each other through correction and encouragement. All Christians have a responsibility to, to shepherd one another and be subject or submissive to one another in basic Christian obedience. But this is different. Paul now says, just as every Christian is to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ as a Christian is to the Lord, specifically wives, this is a different category, are to be that way to their own husbands. He doesn't tell the husbands to be submissive to their wives in this passage. Again, the verb is hupotasso. It means to cause, to be submissive, and submissive in a relationship to subject, to subordinate in specific roles. That's right out of my BDAG, my, my Greek lexicon. The exhortation for a Christian wife to submit to her husband is 
the pervasive and, listen, universal teaching of the New Testament. George Knight says this, it's really amazing. Every single passage that deals with the relationship of the wife to her husband, every single passage tells her to submit to him using the same verb, hupotasso, to put yourself under. What Paul is saying here, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, gives us an insight into what that means. It is a seri- as serious, ladies, it is as serious as your submission to Christ. It's a response to your own fear of Christ yourself. If you notice, the, the, the title of today is The Trusting Submission of a Godly Wife. Now, without explanation, you might think this is the trusting submission of a godly wife who trusts her husband. And hopefully that's the case if you're a godly husband. But ultimately, the trusting submission, borrowing from 1 Peter, where he tells us, tells you as wives, don't be frightened by any fear, is really you're trusting the Lord. You trust the Lord even over the authority of your husband in your home. Peter tells his readers, and we'll look at this in great detail next week, For in this way, former times, the holy women also hoped in God. There's the hope in God. Used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So their hope in God, listen, hope in God translated to submission to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now we'll look at this next week, but if you want to ever see authority that fails, just study Sarah and Abraham. Calling him Lord. I've not quite had that practical application in my own home yet. Nor am I looking for it. And you become her children if you do what is right. Listen, hoping in God, submitting to your husband, here's the qualifier, without being frightened by any fear. In other words, you're not afraid of the consequences of your submission. You're not afraid of the self-denial in your Submission, you're only afraid of the Lord if there is no submission. At the heart of this idea of submission is order. In God's providence, he has established distinct roles of leadership and authority within the family. And submission is a humble recognition of God's divine order of that. So, ladies, what does this mean practically? What does it mean for you as a Christian wife to submit to your husband? Let me give you a one sentence summary and then we'll break it down, okay? It means to honor his position, to follow his leadership, and to encourage his authority in your home. Let me say that again. It means to honor his position as the head of the home, to follow his leadership, and to encourage his authority in your home. Let's go to another layer of practicality. It means honoring your husband's position without competition for headship. Now, next week we're going to look a whole lot. I'm going to give you a whole list of what it does not mean. But if you overqualify, it loses the power of the command. You honor your husband's position without competition for headship. That does not mean you don't 
push back against decisions you disagree with. It doesn't mean you don't appeal with decisions that you, you want challenged. It doesn't mean that at all. But it ultimately means that you realize that you are submitting to God as you submit to your husband, even if you disagree short of sin. It also means you follow his leadership without undermining it to your children. One of the things that I have witnessed over the decades of counseling is the damage that can be done when a wife who is struggling to submit to her husband begins to look to her children either for counsel against her husband or for leverage against him. I've also seen wives who have very difficult marriages who've done nothing but encourage their children to love and pray for their father and that always bears fruit. It also means knowing the difference between challenging and being insubordinate. It understands that you can appeal, you can offer wisdom without challenging. Let me just give you a little insight as to how my marriage works. Every major decision I run through the wisest person I know, which is my wife, Kim. And there are many times that we disagree about little things, where to go to lunch, about big things, uh, how, to, how to discipline our children, about bigger things, about purchases of cars and homes and job changes and all the above. And I would never make those decisions without hearing her wisdom, her insights. But there are occasions where after talking about it, it's not an issue of righteousness or sin, but we just don't agree. In all of those occasions, I have often heard the refrain, honey, listen, I disagree with this decision, but I trust God that he's giving me leadership through you. I'm responsible to submit to you, and you're responsible for this decision before God. <laughs> She's right. She's right. There's a difference between appealing and challenging. You understand that. What, what I'm arguing is submission doesn't mean just shut up and bear it. All of the one another's are still in effect between a man and a woman who are Christians in their home. It also means that when you appeal and you think that there's a sinful situation that your husband is, is um, walking into, there is another layer of authority in your life. That's the church. If you feel like you're at loggerheads, let me invite you. Listen, men, I want to invite every woman in our church body that if she feels you are leading her in a sinful decision, we as a church leadership team are inviting her to bring that decision and you to talk to us. Martha Peace writes, a wife is to be submissive to her husband in all things unless her husband asks her to sin. A submissive wife is not afraid to do the right thing, which is to submit. A wife is to be submissive even if her husband is not a Christian. Hold that thought till next week. A submissive wife does not dishonor the word of God. And a wise wife will seek training and counsel on submission from an older, godly woman. Put all this together and, and a godly, submissive wife resists competition with her husband for headship. 
She resists complaints about his headship, instead learns to encourage him to the right decisions. And she also avoids criticism in her heart, to her children, and to anyone who has ears to hear. Now, I know there are a lot of questions swirling around in your mind that begin with this this phrase. Yes, but... You don't know my situation. You don't know my husband. You don't know my family background. You don't know my lack of training. You don't know, and you can, you're probably right. But Peter is going to help us to cut through that fog with some very simple principles on the yes, but next week. Submission means you follow the headship and the leadership of your husband. Now, you're probably longing for more clarification So Paul understood that and he gives it to you in a second clarifying insight about a Christian wife's submission to her husband. First of all, it's motivated by submission to Christ. You do this as you submit to Christ. He's the one you're honoring, obeying. Number two, it is illustrated by submission to Christ. It is illustrated by submission to Christ. Verse 23, for the husband is the head, kephale, not source, but authority, He's the head of the wife. Where's the analogy? As Christ also is the head of the church. Jesus himself being the savior of the body. Here we discover the profound theological reason for submission. Namely, the headship of Jesus. Now, pay attention to the verse. Pay attention to the passage. And please notice That the text does not say that a husband should be the head of the wife. It doesn't say that at all. It says that he is the head in the relationship. He's either a good leader or a bad leader. He's either an honorable head who who can be followed and respected or he's a bad one who should be prayed for. It's based on Christ's role and his relationship to his bride, the church. Look at verse 24. As the church is submissive or subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands. And then this is the phrase that freaks everybody out. In everything. Well, no scripture can contradict other scriptures. No one is to cause anyone to sin. Jesus said, if you cause someone to sin, especially a younger one or one in submission to you, specifically children in that context, if you cause someone to sin, it's better for you that a a drowning stone is tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea and drowned. It's not limited by anything except sin. Now, some of you are thinking, well, submit to him and everything. What about the, the recliner and Cheetos comment I made last week, which actually solicited a lot of responses? Um, is submission, the husband walks in, grabs the lazy boy, hits the lever, leans back, says, woman, bring me Cheetos and Coke Zero, for argument's sake. Is that a part of submitting to everything? Maybe. Maybe that's the way you serve and love him. 
But if he is being ungodly in his request, that does not mean you cannot appeal and say, honey, I know you had a long day. I did too. Can we talk about this? Now, we, we spent time on this. I'm not gonna go back and re-preach the husband's role, but honestly, as servants and those who love our wives, we ought to be walking home and saying, hit the recliner, here are the, the broccoli and ranch. No, here's the Cheetos and whatever you want. We should be in the servant role. Biblical leadership, Christian leadership is always by service. Headship is by service. The son of man, Mark 8, did not come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. Verse 23, it goes on. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. Then a little footnote, he himself being the savior of the body. The key word renders submit or be subject to has to do with subordination of someone in an ordered way against someone underneath someone who is in authority over them. And the idea of the submission is the notion of order of position, of rank, not of ontology or being. God is ordained, God is established. Particular leadership and authority roles in the family and submission is a humble recognition and godly response to that divine ordering. If you have a parent, remember that we are gonna come back to this passage leaking into chapter six in just a few weeks. Paul makes it simple. The husband is the head of the wife. He doesn't say they ought to be. He says that's the way God has ordered it. That's the way it is. And to understand this, you have to go back to his use of the term head two other times earlier in Ephesians, both in reference to Christ. 122 and 415 talks about his leadership of his bride, the church. The leadership is always for her good, for her benefit, for her holiness, for her righteousness. Why? Because of divine order. Now, lest you think, well, why did God order it this way? Is God against women? No more so than he's against his own son. 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Please notice this is rooted in Trinitarian relationships and roles not according to culture. For man did not originate from woman, but a woman from man. Paul goes on, for indeed a man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Don't confuse that to she was created to be his slave. She was created because man was incomplete without her. 1 Timothy 2, a woman must quietly receive instruction. This is going back to the creation as well, talking about the church With entire submissiveness, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain silent or quiet in the church. Why? For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. We'll come back to that in just a few weeks, but know this. It's rooted in divine order, not just in your positions. Now, we talked with the men a few weeks ago about the two ditches that you're supposed to drive on the lane between. Domineering authoritarianism, that's oppressing a wife, being oppressive, or passive inattention, that's just passivity. 
We can't be passive. We can't be ogres and, and, and oppressors. We drive in a lane that honors Christ and leads as Christ leads. But there's also two extremes or two ditches that a woman, a Christian wife can fall into. First, competing authoritarianism or oppressive insubordination. I'm not gonna listen to you. You're not worthy of me listening to. And the other side is passive capitulation or docile compliance. Just simply complying, submitting, capitulating by abandoning your opinion or your wisdom or your one anotherness to your husband. All the one another's are still in play between a husband and wife. As I said last week, Martha P. says, pastors often avoid the issue of submission because the subject is so volatile. She's right, but that's because the subject is so misunderstood and we allow the culture to define our terms rather than the living word of God. Why is this so sensitive? As I said earlier, many women have been treated horribly, terribly, and anti what the, God said, what the Bible says. Yet in our efforts to right and correct these terrible wrongs, we must be extremely careful and mindful not to abandon God's design for the sexes. Strauch writes, Biblical submission does not eliminate the biblical principles of justice, fairness, love, kindness, and compassion that every Christian, male and female, should practice in every aspect of life and marriage. Please note also that wives is not qualified here. One commentator says this, this applies to every Christian wife regardless of her social standing, education, intelligence, spiritual maturity or giftedness, age, experience, or any other consideration. And he goes on, nor is it qualified by her husband's intelligence, his character, his attitude, his spiritual condition, or any consideration. Paul says all believing wives should be subject to their own husbands in all categories. Verse 25 tells us, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her purpose, this holiness that he might sanctify her, cleansing her with the water of the word, presenting the church to the Father without stain or wrinkle and holy and blameless. This works best, listen, friends, this works best when both the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, own, understand, study and apply, seek accountability for their own roles. When they both do this, this is a beautiful thing. And I know that many will say, yes, but what if my husband doesn't? You have to come back next week where Peter will help us address that. Men have a tremendous responsibility before the Lord to lead in a way that Christ leads his church. You can listen to the sermons a few weeks ago on that. It's basically, basically illustrated by submission to Christ. We submit to Christ. Christ submits to the Father. Wives specifically in their relationships with their husbands submit to their husbands. Thirdly, it is demonstrated demonstrated, played out by submission to Christ or submission to Christ himself. Jump down to verse 33. 
He's been talking about marriage and he jumps back. He says, this mystery is great. A man and a woman leaving their homes, becoming one flesh. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. There's the analogy. And as I said last week, this is the only, let me get a little bit theological with you. This is the only reciprocating analogy in the New Testament. And by that, I mean, if you read this whole passage, marriage is portrayed as illustrating the gospel. And at the same time, the gospel is portrayed as illustrating and informing marriage. They both illustrate one another. He bounces back and forth in verses 32 and 33. Nevertheless, verse 33, each individual among you, men, is to love his own wife even as himself. And, last phrase, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, we have to, we have to do some good exegesis here. Because the New American Standard got a little bit afraid of fear. Because this word, see to it that she respects her husband, literally is the word fear. See to it that she fears her husband. Does this mean that I should walk in and my wife should cowl in the corner and say, please be merciful to me today, Mr. Holland, Lord Holland? That's not what it means. That's not what it means at all. The trusting submission of a godly wife is anchored in her fear of Christ. Which she transitions into fear of her own husband. This is looking through the human institution to the divine. Verse 21 bookends is the first bookend. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And the last thing Paul says is see to it that you fear her husband, which is ultimately being subject to the fear of Christ. In other words, fearing your husband isn't being afraid of him and his, his threats or his, his potential. Living in the fear of your husband means I fear Christ enough to fear my own possibility of not submitting to my husband. In other words, it's done with the right attitude. Peter O'Brien says this, this is no slavish fear in view. Rather, the wife's fear of her husband, which reflects the fear of believers who are subordinate to those in authority over them in verse 21, recognizes his God-given position as head. Hers is the answer of a free and responsible person. It's a middle voice in the Greek which is neither conditional nor due to her husband's merits or due to his performance. Her response reflects not only what she does, but her attitude in doing it. In other words, you're afraid of displeasing Christ, which puts that same fear and reverence in play as you submit to your husband. I am not suggesting that you cowl as a wife against your husband. If he is a legitimate threat, come and talk to us. We can talk about what that might mean in terms of practical application. It means we fear Christ, which was the honor and respect and revere a husband. Attitude is critical. And the obvious question again in your mind right now for some of you, is what if my husband is not a Christian? What if my husband is unworthy of such fear? What if I really am afraid of my husband in an ungodly way? Next week, we'll address that. Quick word. 
to single ladies. I want to beg you as a single woman looking someday to be in a relationship that you will one day, according to God's word, be in subordination and submission to this man. Choose wisely. When you choose who to date, my mom, my sweet mom, sweet country girl from Tennessee, I must have heard it a thousand times, Ricky, every date is a potential mate. (laughs) And unless you have an arranged marriage, she's right. Be careful Ladies, girls, gals, be careful who you choose to give your affections to because ultimately this is a man that God will expect and require you to submit to. Your submission is a gift. Don't give it away unwisely. Also, don't fall victim to submitting to men who are not your husbands yet. Yes, you should let a man lead, but you're not required to submit to them biblically. However, if you find you're having trouble following his leadership, it may be an indication that he's not a good leader. Pick your husband carefully. Pick your dates carefully. This is the man God will call you to submit to. And for all of us, learning to submit to authority that fails gives us the prerequisite attitude and disposition for understanding the great lordship and headship of Jesus who will never fail us. Obvious questions. Submit to my husband and everything, Rick? What if I don't want to submit to him and everything? Have you talked to him about that? Nothing in this passage says you can't appeal, you can't discuss. Nothing in this passage says you you need to present yourself as the doormat and the slave and the maid. Come back tonight, we're gonna talk about this. Godly Christian relationships understand how to communicate, how to respond to one another and are committed to resolving it no matter what. Listen, every Christian husband in this room, myself at the head of the list, will fail in our headship, will fail in our communication, will fail in shepherding conflict resolution. And every woman will fail at some level in her submission. Working out those two roles in a relationship are intended by God, the friction that comes with that are intended by God to actually motivate each of us into greater levels of holiness and sanctification. I'll never forget years ago, more than 10 years ago, not at this church, a man sitting in my office telling me this, in front of his wife, it would be way easier to lead a woman who understood how to submit. And before I could say anything about that, she said very quickly, that's interesting because it will be way easier for 
personalize it. For me to submit to you if you are worthy of my submission. So we talked for the next while, I think a few hours as I remember it, about the fact that let's give each other the, the benefit of being married to a sinner. You do know you are married to a sinner. Is that, is that news to anyone? Grace. There is grace for this. There is grace for your relationship. There is room for growth. It involves communication and talking and softness and teachability and understanding, listen, understanding as a husband that the place to begin is with your own godly headship and as a wife, the place to begin is with the attitude of your submission which leads to honoring and serving and encouraging your husband's leadership. Ladies, do you honor his leadership? Do you encourage it? Do you belittle it? Do you criticize it? Do you confront it? Does he feel defeated because anytime he tries to lead, you trip him? Is there an open dialogue about how you can be a better submitter and he can be a better head? And you're both looking to yourselves and you're caring for each other to be a better and more God-honoring and gospel-reflecting husband and wife. These are not hard truths. I was thinking about this... um, I was praying over my notes even this morning. It's not hard to understand. And it's a parallel to the doctrine of divine sovereignty and salvation and election. That's not hard to understand. Typically, the problem is not that we don't understand it. It's that we don't like it. All of us should grow to love and like the roles and responsibilities that God has given us as a godly husband and a godly wife. And for those who don't have a godly spouse, let me beg you, Peter knows about you. And he will give us specific instruction on how to navigate that relationship Next week, you can get a head start by reading the first seven verses of First Peter chapter three.